our text today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Uh, 1 Peter is right after James, just before 2 Peter. Uh, and if you're still having trouble, you can always look at the table of contents at the very front of your Bibles. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into its angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us to hear and know your word today. May the Holy Spirit open our ears and our hearts to this message. And may he bless our understanding of it so that we may honor and obey. Amen. This is a letter that is written by the Apostle Peter, not Paul. Apostle Peter. It's around 63 or 64 AD. This is just before the persecution by the Emperor Nero. This doesn't mean that the church was not persecuted before that. It just means that it's just before the state-sponsored persecution. This letter is one of a collection of letters that are often referred to as the Catholic letters, the general letters. The Catholic here does not mean the Roman church. It means what it actually means, which is general or universal James, 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude, and 1, 2, 3 John are considered to be the general letters. This letter has a theme of salvation and suffering. It is Peter writing not to a specific locale, such as what Paul has often done in his letters, but to a more general audience of the elect. If you notice in verse 1, Peter specifically notes that it is to those who are living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We also see something very interesting in these first couple of verses. What is interesting is Peter's use of the term diaspora. The term diaspora has most often been used to describe the displaced Hebrew nation, displaced after being conquered and dispersed. This is interesting because the audience of this letter is predominantly Gentile, not Jewish. 
Peter is writing to these people in exile about their salvation in the midst of their suffering. So this term of diaspora, when used to address those who are the elect, is referring to a people, a nation of those whose citizenship is in heaven, and yet they are still finding themselves here on earth. This is what we are. We are all the diaspora of the elect, saved but not yet in the kingdom. It should be easy, then, for us to understand the concept of salvation and suffering. We are saved, for we are in Christ, assured of eternal life. We are saints. But we are also, at times, miserable saints. We also can have the joy sucked out of our lives. We can be left in a pile of quivering jelly on the floor, wondering when the pain and suffering of what we are enduring is going to end. We certainly don't always have the struggles and persecution that many have endured over the course of history, but persecution is present in the world. And while we may not face obstacles in coming to church and worshiping God, we can still have suffering. In many ways, our world offers temptations in a vastly different and more accessible manner than in the past. So just because we have affluence doesn't mean our faith doesn't need to be strong. Because make no mistake, we will, at some point in our lives, come to a place where all we have is God. We will come to a place in our lives where the only one that we can depend on is Jesus Christ. Where the only worthwhile counsel is that of the Holy Spirit. We will come to a place where our only hope is in the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it will be more than enough. Peter has written in verse 3 of our text, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a hope that is alive. We are reborn into a living hope because of Christ's conquering of death. If we are on the floor, it should be in the awe of the mercy of our blessed Father and not because we are defeated. It should be for the great joy and gratitude that is found in our salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has saved us. We have a new life. Because of this new life, we have a resounding joy. And we have a resounding joy because of the perfect planning of God. We have a new life. It says so right there in verse 3. We have been born again. Some of us find this to be quite frustrating. It's frustrating because our lived experience and this message for us today can seem to be in opposition to one another. A new life brings to mind something that we naturally think of as the complete opposite of the one we might have been living before we came to Christ. And then there are those who have grown up in Christian homes, who have kept the faith, and who cannot make a comparison to a life before they were baptized. And yet both those who grew up in Christian homes and those who came to faith later in life still struggle with sin. We may, because of our shame found in sin, even question our salvation. So the message that we have a new life and a new hope is one that is hard to fully realize 
Life teaches us a system of rewards and punishments. We do something really good, we get a really good reward. But if we do something terrible, we pay a terrible price. So looking at verse 3, with eyes that have not experienced the fullness of life, we may stagger to understand and live out the meaning. As we learn and grow, we might see how the vast richness of experience that can bring us down to our knees in despair also leads us to turn to that deeply rooted faith that Christ has sown. The gift of the Holy Spirit to whisper into your ear, you have a new life. And so you have always a new hope, despite the sins you struggle with. Hebrews 6.19 calls this hope an anchor for the soul. It is a hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can have hope because Jesus rose from the dead. Because of him, we too shall have life after death. A hope in something that is called an inheritance in verse 4. This is unlike any earthly inheritance that we can imagine. Earthly inheritance is usually tied to money or some other things of value. Our minds can easily wander to the dollar signs. The people of Peter's times also understood the value of an inheritance, even if it was in the form of livestock or land and not necessarily money. Peter would understand this meaning because of his forefathers. They were told that they would be richly blessed in the land that your Lord God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, which is what it says in Deuteronomy 15.4. This inheritance in Deuteronomy 15, the word for it, means something that is inalienable. It cannot be separated from the Hebrew nation. Peter takes the opportunity to explain that the inheritance he is referring to is not one that is earthly, like the blessing of the land of Canaan was to the people of Israel. This inheritance that Peter is explaining to the believers is far and away better. It's being kept, safeguarded in a place called heaven. This deliverance from suffering and persecution to this inheritance is far better. It is imperishable. It does not expire. You can't spoil it. This treasure is undefiled. It is pure, 100% salvation. It comes with no strings attached, and it is unfading. Time does not diminish its splendor. It does not die. It does not fade in the sun. Our inheritance, our salvation, can be described as all of these things in verse 4, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading Because we have absolutely nothing to do with it. No one does. We are not relying on our own efforts, the efforts of our government or even our pastors and elders. No, our salvation is given and guarded by the power of God. We are guarded by God through our faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we will be delivered from all of this persecution, this pain, and this suffering. Our salvation is protected by power, and it will be fully realized in the last days, after we have passed through all the trials that refine us. We are saved right now through faith in Jesus Christ. We are protected by God as we tend to our corrupt and mortal flesh and delivered in a fully and wondrous glorification at the end. 
We have this new life. And so we have a resounding joy. Peter acknowledges something that we know to be true. And if we don't yet know this, we will find out rather quickly. Verse 6 says that, yes, we can rejoice in the salvation of our souls, but we still must contend with the many trials and tribulations that come. Being a Christian does not make middle school any easier. It doesn't make high school or college graduation any less bittersweet, or retirement for that matter. Being a Christian does not mean we feel less pain when we run a marathon. Our first attempts at being adults, our ongoing experiences at making grown-up decisions come with great joys, but also with some painful lessons. We make and break relationships. We yearn for things we do not have. We experience new emotions and challenges. We have pain. We have times of trial. We do good, but sadly, we also do evil. Peter opens this part of our text with a call for us to rejoice. And he ends in verse 8 by expounding on this rejoicing, saying that it is done with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter is explaining something that is in part a mystery, a command, and a statement of fact. There are three basic words to describe joy in biblical Greek. One states the benefits of health and happiness. Another is the subjective feeling of joy. And the third, the one that Peter is using here, is that of an outward demonstration of joy and exaltation. For some, this joy through trials and tribulations is something of a mystery. Why or how can we truly have joy when we are walking in despair? And this is a great question. It's one that's often asked in a much grander scale. Why does God allow bad things to happen? is asked of many Sunday school teachers. The answer can be viewed as equally mysterious. God ordains all things to the goodness of his glory. If we say we believe John 4.24 that God is spirit, then we believe that God is pure, that he has no moving parts. There is nothing that is working counter to those attributes that are part of God. That God is spirit means he is fully transcendent and fully present. There is no place where God isn't. If we believe that God is love, as it says in 1 John 4.16, then we must believe that God not only loves us, but that he is love, pure, through and through. If we believe that God created all things and is all-powerful and all-knowing, that he is spirit pure, with no moving parts, that God is love, then we must also agree that God's attribute of goodness is inseparable from his infinite knowledge, wisdom, and power. And then we must also agree that no matter how confusing it is to us, all things that God does is good, his mercy and his judgment is righteous. It is something for which we can rejoice even if we are suffering. If we then have faith in Christ Jesus, faith given to us by God's mercy, whose goodness and love is part of the very essence of his infinite being, then this mystery becomes something that we can truly rejoice with an exalted joy that is understood only by those who are also in the faith. 
especially by those who have been continually walking in the faith through their lives and their trials. So Peter, in faith, tells us in a manner that is close enough to a command, not commanding that you should feel a certain way, but one that says for us to outwardly express our joy, even in the view of all that Peter has mentioned in verse 6, all the trials that test the genuineness of our faith. These are some weighty trials, after all. Ask yourself, what hardship can force you to doubt your faith? What fires can you endure that will cause you to wonder about that very relationship that you have with our Lord Jesus Christ? Paul gives us a pretty good answer in Philippians 1.21. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Your faith will not let you down. Your salvation is anchored. Remember, it is kept safe in heaven. As you continue to walk in sanctification, putting to death the old self, bringing to life the new, enduring trials, believing in the mystery of God's goodness, believing and loving that which you do not see, outwardly expressing your joy, you realize that such a thing as faith, which is portrayed in our society as that which is subjective, is not. Faith is a fact. God is a fact. Christ died for you and conquered death in the resurrection. You have everlasting life through Christ. That is a statement of fact. As Peter says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's third point for us today is really a continuation of why we should have this resounding joy as if salvation wasn't enough. We should have this resounding joy in our salvation because this has been the plan all along, this gift of our salvation. And it is a wonderful and precious gift that is not only of immense value and worth, but one that is exceedingly and irrevocably secure. The great lengths that Peter goes to in explaining this underscores a vastly important point. Peter could have simply said, your inheritance is secure, it is in heaven. And this would have implied its durability. After all, no thief can steal that away. We have something that is a spectacular gift, a wonderful value, something that is far better than any 401k or Roth IRA. As verse 4 tells us that we have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, one that is kept secure in heaven. Peter's point is that our salvation is guaranteed. It always has been guaranteed. It is seen in our Bibles from the first page to the last. The Old Testament does not speak of a different salvation or a means to achieve that end. No, it speaks of God initiating a relationship with us. It speaks of our inability to maintain that relationship, and it speaks of our need for rescue, our need for a Savior. A Savior that has known us, has stitched our lives together, and ensured our eternal life. Our Bibles speak of the redemption that God has for us, for the everlasting surety of God upholding His end of the covenant. In verse 10, Peter says that the prophets spoke of the grace that we would enjoy, the grace that they searched for and inquired about unceasingly. All throughout the history of the prophets, they have been searching for this understanding, 
of who the Messiah is and how he would bring about salvation for his people. They knew that it was coming. After all, the Holy Spirit was also testifying to them and guiding them in their walk with Christ, even though they were not quite aware, perhaps, of Christ. Just as we are all guided now in our walk with Christ, who has been revealed to those who have the ears to hear God's word revealed to us. Many people may think as a default, and it's an honest mistake to make on our part, that Christ isn't seen in the Old Testament, that Christ is something new, hence the New Testament. But that is not the case. Peter says so here in verse 11, that the Spirit of Christ was in them, the prophets, working on the gospel message to the people of God, working on something that they did not see, that they did not understand, perhaps, but was still nonetheless ever-present. The Bible, the holy word of God, is for you, forged over thousands of years to present the gospel, the good news of life everlasting through Jesus Christ. That's perfect planning, perfect execution from a perfect God. This motif of suffering and glory can be seen all throughout our Bible. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, for example, all speak to the suffering of God's people, but they do not just leave them in the pit. Yes, your sin leads you down a path of suffering. It has for the nation of Israel. It has for all of us. It continues to this day, and it will be present tomorrow and next week. The prophets speak of suffering, but they also speak of redemption. God's judgment on his people for their sin does not stop there. The final vision for us is not found in the valley of the shadow of death. No. It is found in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels long to look. Instead of dead, dry bones of judgment, we have revelation. We have hope. How does this look in our world today? So many of you may know that I'm the assistant pastor here, but I'm also a hospital chaplain. Recently, I was called out to the hospital a few months ago to visit with this elderly woman who was described to me as being severely depressed, possibly suicidal. I was told that she had lost her husband about a year ago and was extremely sad. So when I get to the hospital and I went to the patient's room, I didn't find a sad, depressed woman. Instead, I found a buoyed and resolute woman, one who was not quite joyous, but was indeed joyful. Intrigued as to the difference from what was reported to what I actually found, I engaged in a conversation with her, and I found out that, yes, she did indeed lose her husband. It was about 13 months ago, and she was very sad. She did miss him greatly. I also found that she had been battling a terminal case of cancer. She'd been doing this for several years and had just gotten the news that it has spread all over her abdomen. The doctors told her there was still treatment, though, still treatment through chemo, might prolong her life by a few months. This dear woman told me she had no intention of taking any such treatment. And I surmise that's where the doctors thought that she was suicidal. She was refusing to continue with treatment and instead chose to go home with her family in hospice. What I also found was that this woman was a devout Christian who professed a strong 
and profound faith and a true joy in her salvation. Her joy was not an exuberant jubilation. There were no party favors and balloons. I found it to be a blessed satisfaction in her knowledge and relationship to Christ. Her joy was rooted in her faith and exaltation of Christ. She knew where she was going. This is what I found when I walked into that hospital room. This wonderful lady who was reported to me as being depressed had a profound hope. In spite of the cancer that had spread all over her body, she completely trusted in the Lord and the life everlasting. She was completely at peace. She even had joy in the midst of her suffering. For some in the hospital, this was a real challenge. I found myself ministering to the doctor much more than I had to minister to the patient. Some I call this evangelizing, something that can be dangerous for us to do in the workplace, even for a hospital chaplain. Yet we are still called to spread the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified. And we do this by doing what Peter tells us to do. Rejoice in our salvation. Do so publicly in exaltation of Christ, even while living through your trials. People should then ask you, why are you so happy? Your life is terrible. Where does this joy come from? When you have suffering, remember that you have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not just for the meantime or a little while, but for all of eternity. You are kept and will be lifted up in the last days that God only knows, those days in which even the angels long for. So trust in Christ, improve your walk with him daily, and rejoice always in the face of trials and tribulations, knowing that you have the inheritance of heavenly things, the redemption of our souls, and the reconciliation to our heavenly Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the author of spiritual life. You have given us the good word. Grant that we may receive it into honest hearts and guard it by your grace. Let us go forth in pursuit of faith unfeigned, a blameless life, and irreproachable conduct through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.